everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am not redoing that again. Behind the scenes, I already messed it up. Maybe I'll include the other mess up. Who knows? Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Jess Geyer, and I am responsible for the editing, so this is fine. And here with me today is my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Um, hi, Jess. Uh, I'm Craig Campbell. Um, I make RPGs through Nerdburger Games. You are one half of uh, Wannabe Games. And you make games as well. And I'm not a morning that person. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> yes, like, yeah, you're, you're totally off your game because we're I recording have. very early our time <laughs> because our guest is from the other side of the world. <laughs> um, and we needed to try to arrange all this. Hi, Pam. Hi, uh, I'm Pam Ponsalan. I make games under Pamu or The Dovetailer. I think a lot of folks might follow me on Twitter or might have seen me streaming for Asians Represent before. And uh, that's uh, about it for me so far. <laughs> that's about, you have a long resume. I mean, you've been on our podcast <laughs> twice before already. So thank you again for coming back. Of course. Wait, twice, right? I'm not making that up. It's just, I think it's. Uh, we lost the recording the right. first time. Yeah. That's and, why and it feels like multiple. It feels like twice. <laughs> <laughs> we had to, it was interesting for, uh, for a glimpse behind the screen very briefly, um, behind the, the microphones. We recorded an entire episode with Pam and then the recording was no good or lost or something happened. And so we ended up having to do another recording of the same topic and trying very hard to make it all very spontaneous and very fun and like kind of covering <laughs> a lot of the same things. So I, now I've done that before with podcasts where we've lost recording and then try to redo it. It's tough because you feel like, well, we just talked about this. Mm -hmm. But I think we did okay. So if you didn't notice that we were kind of retreading something that we had talked about a week before, then we did a good job. <laughs> oh yeah, this is this is the episode where we're opening up the hood, we're looking inside, you're seeing Jessica's sleep schedule. It's all this stuff. It's, it's... <laughs> well, Craig, Craig, what are we talking about today? Oh, today, uh, first up, GMing topic. We're going to talk about um, making enemies adversaries, foes, scary, or I think we can probably expand that into formidable, memorable, like making them kind of like more than just, you know, a pile of hit points that needs to be reduced to zero so that you can move on with the plot. There's, I think, probably a lot of ways to do that from a lot of different uh, viewpoints. Every GM kind of handles their adversaries in different ways. Um, some love to have ones that are like just big, bad, horrible, difficult to kill. Like they're just not going to go away. Other one and other GMs might kind of cycle through a lot more um, bad guys. You may have a campaign with a, with a, with an adversary that's going to be there long-term um, or you might have a campaign where you're going to have, uh, you know, lots of smaller adversaries along the way, but what, what, can, what can we do to make those enemies scary formidable make Memorable. players remember yeah. them yeah well i think that villains are just a staple adversaries you you need them you need an antagonist to every protagonist otherwise you have a protagonist sitting around twiddling their thumbs and not doing much they need to be challenged in some way and if you think about it from that literary standpoint you know there's you know you could have a person versus person person versus self uh, i right. mean conflict but that doesn't really play out as well if you're playing a TTRPG with multiple people at the table. You can have some of that person versus self-conflict, but 
the moment that you as the GM start directing that person versus self-conflict, you are putting the spotlight on that one character. And that's fine. But um, that person versus person conflict is is so good because it can get everybody on board mm-hmm. um, with with different kinds of stakes. You could be involved in your friend's person versus self-conflict, but that's maybe we could talk about that in a minute. Uh, <laughs> but every every like really good piece of literature that you probably enjoy or like blockbuster movie that you like has a cool villain that you're attached to, like. I was just thinking about um, Loki the other day and how the character, like from the Marvel movies and comics, of course, but he has been like this, this character that started off very one note, very like, mm-hmm. like I am evil. I hate my brother Thor. Ha ha ha. And now he has in like, they give him his own whole series. So what, what, how can you capture that magic? How can you capture the magic of, of a character like that? This villain that everyone loves? I don't know. That's a question I'm kind of posing to myself <laughs> right now. It's rhetorical, but also not. <laughs> I think that when I think about antagonists in particular and enemies, especially in TTRPGs, because you can't really, at least in my opinion, you can't really make a, a singular guide because certain systems lend themselves to certain narratives and they also have certain constraints. Like in as much as I understand the value of DMP, I will also say that it's extremely difficult to design a, a antagonist in D&D that won't be reduced to a whole bunch of hit points and a whole bunch of interesting abilities, right? Yeah. So uh, in that sense, if you're gonna make a, a foe there that it falls upon the GM to create kind of like a story, I find it very productive to figure out what actually makes the people at my table scared. That's that's how to make, at least for me, a formidable, a, a formidable opponent or a formidable enemy. Another possible way of approaching it is what makes the characters at the table question who they are and question what they're doing, whether what they're doing is right or wrong. And then the third option is uh, how can you make your players, or rather, how can you make your characters realize the consequences of their actions? Because some antagonists can emerge from cause and effect that takes place at your table, and they can become super effective NPCs, even just for like a minor, a minor art, because it's very easy for... I mean, depending on how you've set, of course, expectations at your table, right? Like some people just like going murder hobo, et cetera, et cetera, um, which um, I'm really not a fan of, but I understand that some people like it, right? But if your if your players have bought into an experience or rather if, if your entire table has agreed, okay, we're going to play out how uh, how our decisions have created ripples in this world, naturally, there will always be people who are unhappy with the decisions you've made. And if you can figure out that singular reason why they're unhappy and you can create a character out of it, you've already made a good cornerstone for an antagonist. Now, uh, a lot of people have noticed that my feed is like half politics, half Final Fantasy XIV. And there's a reason <laughs> for that because the, the second to the last arc of Final Fantasy XIV has a very, very impressive antagonist. And the reason why he's impressive to me is because 
his motivation is to, and this, I guess, major spoilers for anybody who has played the game yet, right? His major motivation is to restore the broken world that he came from. And he has lived literally thousands of years, and he claims that he has given the humanity in FF14 millions of chances. And as he puts it, you have all been found wanting. So his last, he doesn't even look at you anymore as human. He looks at you as pieces of a world that he used to belong to. So his motivation is he'll just wipe all of you out, start again, and create a world that he desires. And that's pretty like, yo, that's some deep stuff, right? That's very Final Fantasy. That's very Final Fantasy, right? So you have that antagonist. And of course, since you were on the other side of that, you can't allow him to do that because that means the end of existence for you and everything you know. And yet you can't say that either side is right or wrong with those with that kind of premise. So your side has its reasons for living. His side has his reasons for wanting to end all of it and create something anew. And you've created, and in that, the game has created an impressive conundrum. You as player have to stop this person while understanding, if you do, why he has come in that direction. So that's, that's amazing to me. That, that is, for me, the true definition of an antagonist. There's a reason why a lot of lit teachers like myself right, uh, used to say there's a difference between villain and antagonist. Mm-hmm. Right? There's also a difference. Oh, sorry, I'm going to tell you guys. My cat might come in. There's my cat. <laughs> it's okay. I heard the jingling. <laughs> the little thing. <laughs> so um, the, the villain is, is evil. Like You can ethically and morally say, Within this sta- these standards, he is evil, or they are evil. But an antagonist is an obstruction, a, con- uh, a generator of conflict. And because it is a generator of conflict, it's a generator of action. And you, you, you can't just say, what are you going to do, guys? And your players can't just go like, they have to move, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's, that for me is the root of it, I guess. You have to create something that within the, the bounds of your table generates conflict, forces action, leaves room for possibilities. And I wouldn't say you have to make a mirror specifically to your players because I feel that that should be optional. But making them think is, is more than enough. And giving them room to respond to you rather than you just saying like, look at this beautiful thing I've done. You also have to give room for your players to actually go like, okay, wait a second. How would my character deal with this? Because viscerally as player, I'd be like, screw that guy, right? How would my character react to it? What about the constraints of the world? So that's I like that a lot as like that the characters that we like a lot, like the, like the, the quote unquote villains or antagonists that we do like a lot in our movies and our, in our literature, mm-hmm. um, tend to be the ones that have kind of sympathetic motives. And mm-hmm. Loki's kind of an example of that, like that kind of tragic, like I had yeah. a bad backstory. Don't you realize why I don't like my <laughs> father that much? Um, <laughs> although I don't think he would have been as popular if Tom Hiddleston hadn't played him. But no, I, yeah, I, I don't think that that would happen. So maybe make also do what Pam said, but also make it sexy. I think that's the trick. Yeah. Compelling, compelling is a matter of definition, really, right? Like you have to, the more somebody at your table gets to go, holy, that's impressive. 
or when you when you start slipping into the gray territory, that's great. This is not to say again that it's bad if your if your idea of fun is very clear cut, because mm-hmm. that's what the table exists for, right? Uh, right? Things that your players can enjoy. But I personally find that if when you when you ask me how do you make something formidable, there has to be layers to it. Like it doesn't even have to be like sympathetic is one great idea. Uh, the other one for me is like it has to be logical. Mm-hmm. Like there has to have been, you have to be able to answer the constant, very toddler question of like, okay, he's doing this, why? And then that why, and then that why. You break it down until you can describe in a single sentence or two the entire shtick of this guy and people will get it immediately. Because the clearer it is, the, the more you can have, you can develop room for the little tiny fiddly bits that make them seem human. Like even a characteristic gesture of a antagonist can already get people thinking. Uh, I don't know whether I mentioned it in this uh, in this podcast before with somebody else, but when I was running a Blades in the Dark campaign, uh, I created a new character out of Basil Baz, which is a standard NPC. Like his name is literally in the book. You just create your own thing. And he, his interesting tick is, uh, he does not actually smile because his brain is wired in a different way such that he just doesn't feel anything. So his tick is that he doesn't react to you as players for the first 10 to 15 seconds. So you've got me as GM just staring at you. Like I'm trying to calculate how to figure you out. And then that's when a grisly smile will appear. And that's when very exaggerated gestures will happen. So already has players going, oh, what's wrong with this guy, right? <laughs> and then his other tick is that he, he will very suddenly... Uh, he'll he'll show very sudden bursts of violence, but he'll take it out on objects rather than people. So it could be in a particular way that he puts his whiskey bottle down, or it can be in how roughly he lit up his cigarette or he cut that cigar. That's how he does things. So personality-wise, it's very simple, cold, composed, psychotic, but it's the gestures that made him come to life. And that's what got a lot of my players going like... I don't want to mess with this guy. I'm like, yeah, you probably shouldn't. Maybe maybe get to tier three first before you take this guy on, right? So. And that's yeah, you want your you want your players to do that. Not, let's not tackle them when they're level <laughs> one, please. <laughs> yeah. Yet. I think that yeah, I, I I'm not surprised at all that we went down the road very quickly of making <laughs> the villain human, making their motivations um, at least somewhat, if not sympathetic, at least something that the the players can empathize or, or kind of understand. Oh, like I get why this person is doing this thing. Like if I was in that situation. Um, and I had, you know, these terrible things happen to me. It might have shaped me in a certain way as well. Um, it makes that villain very um, relatable, even if it's dark. Um, I'm going to use, I've got a, a, a couple of thoughts um, and, and specifically addressing kind of the idea of like, how can you turn the, the sack of hit points into um, a villain as well? Um, yeah. And I'm going to use as, um, as examples, uh, the Avenger, Avengers movies, because I'm pretty sure that anybody who's listening to this has either already seen all of them or is never going to watch them. And I already brought them up. <laughs> um, and uh, also a minor point from the Hawkeye series. Hmm. Um, Thanos as a villain. 
he is foreshadowed for multiple movies. So even in D&D, a sack of hit points villain can be behind the scenes, can be slowly. You can see the machinations of what they're doing, of what they're up to long before the players uh, can have their characters actually actively move against the villain specifically. They can be trying to deal with whatever it is the villain's trying to do. Um, you can build all of that up in, in all of this foreshadowing and all of this kind of behind the scenes before you get the character out there. Then, you know, there comes a point, obviously, you know, in, in a situation like this where, okay, now the characters have to do something about that villain. And that might turn into multiple encounters at different, you know, in different game sessions. It might, they might get lucky and just off the guy <laughs> or the gal or the robot or the whatever, um, like in the first meeting, because that happens sometimes when you roll the dice. Um, but you know, if you give, if you put some some thought into what the, the villain is doing, what their motivation is, whether or not players might find like, okay, I can understand that. Um, and one of my favorite, absolute favorite moments um, from Hawkeye, and maybe one of my favorite moments from from all of the uh, Marvel stuff so far, is, it, and this doesn't spoil any plot element, everybody from Hawkeye, is when. Um, Hawkeye sees a bit of graffiti that says Thanos was right. And the look in Hawkeye's eyes and the moment of realization that I had as a viewer saying, okay, so this guy who lost his entire family for five years, who went down an incredibly dark path, who was then only saved from that dark path by his best friend, was given a chance to redeem himself and get his family back only to have to give up that best friend forever. And I don't care. And this is Marvel universe where everybody comes back from the dead. Black Widow's dead. She is gone. Um, at least in the, the logic of the Marvel, the, the Marvel cinematic universe right now. And he has to give that up. And then he sees that there are people who are still looking at this villain as like, that guy had the right idea. That is chilling, um, especially given the, you know, what, what Hawkeye went through. And if you, so if you can put your characters and put the players through that sort of personal experience where they lose and gain and lose and sacrifice. And then somebody in the end says like, you know what, the villain had it right. Or somebody else takes up the mantle and just does it a little differently. Um, and you just like the, the, the repercussions that you can get out of that. Um, long-term can make the villain, like even after the fact, like the, the players might be thinking, geez, that guy, <laughs> um, which uh, I, I found myself thinking about that Hawkeye moment a lot as I was preparing for this discussion. It's like, it's, it's maybe the darkest moment for Hawkeye in that entire series where he just looks at that, like the realization in his eyes of like, all really all I went through and people believe this. They trivialized it. And yeah, yeah. the, and, and the they, phrase it, appears on a coffee and mug. Does yeah. it is it is it something that people that some people will truly believe that the villain was doing the right thing? And some people are just making the joke. And either yeah. way, it's a slap in the face. And it makes that that villain's um presence last beyond their death or imprisonment or banishment or whatever it is that you do in the game. I think also just to like add real quickly, uh, I guess because as a as a caveat, I suppose, since we're dealing with tabletop and GMing, GMing tools and whatnot, right? It always helps to 
after creating all of these wonderful things and putting your cornerstones, your milestones, everything together, that uh, as GM, you may have to also just let go. What might be compelling to you or what might be interesting may not be that way at all for your table, right? And like Craig just mentioned it, the whole phenomenon of like, what if they kill them in one go? Like, well, there it is, right? Yeah. Uh, it happens. So the if it helps, I guess, to really talk to your players too regularly, like how are they finding these things and how is it coming off and what what are their keystone moments, I guess, if that's a good way of putting it, that you can as a GM capitalize on or as I, not even as a GM, more of like a storyteller, if that's your, if that's what you're going for, uh, that, that, that might be good. So TLDR, learn to let go <laughs> as you need to. <laughs> yeah. And, and as an extension of that, like you don't, you may not know what, what's going to, even if, you know, if it's not a question of whether the villain gets killed in one shot, what, you know, one encounter um, there's also, you don't know what's going to necessarily ring true and be truly yeah. scary and everything for the for your players yeah. you might try something and decide oh they're just not latching onto this okay so let's have them defeat this villain and we'll introduce a new one and we'll try a, a little something different and and you can keep going until you find that one that the players really go oh no this is very very bad and i'm really now invested in this and this 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 uh, antagonist is scary and has things going on that I'm not a fan of at all. And now you can kind of try to stretch that out as best you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think definitely you have to realize eventually the goal is to defeat this villain. Otherwise everyone's gone and not playing anymore. Uh, so if you don't, if you like have that real personal attachment to your to your antagonist, <laughs> it can be good because that means you really like what you created. But yeah. like Pam said, you do sometimes it might not ring true, and sometimes uh, they will just die, and that's kind of the the point of a of an antagonist in a traditional type RPG where you are killing things that they'll just die, or maybe they will transfer schools, or maybe they something. will <laughs> something will happen to them. Like when I said at the beginning, like all of your favorite pieces of literature have an antagonist that is like, like really gets you. I thought of my, my two favorite books mm -hmm. are Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and mm -hmm. Pride and Prejudice. And in Pride and Prejudice, there's not an antagonist that you can just go murder, right? It's, it's kind of like what Pam was, uh, Pam was saying, it's a mirror into the character. So you have Mr. Wickham, who is like a foil to Mr. Darcy and starts out as a sympathetic kind of character. So that's another way you can start pulling them into like, hey, this guy used to be like a dude we all liked. Yeah. He was cool. And then <laughs> <Do> we <what> happened. <laughs> and then we learn piece by piece, like, oh, he's done all these villainous things. Um, I think Mr. Wickham is definitely a villain. Miss Bingley, on the other hand, in Pride and Prejudice, for all of my Austin heads out there, Miss um, <laughs> Bingley is not a villain. She just, you know, she's another woman in the Regency era, and she has a thing for Mr. Darcy, and she's gonna make Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth Bennet get up, and and <laughs> she's gonna make fun of her and try to tear her down as again a foil to this character. So um, it's not always that uh, they're going to pose a physical threat, maybe a social threat to your yeah. character. 
maybe there's a competing group of heroes out there and everyone likes those heroes better because your heroes keep messing everything up. They burned down the tavern the other day. What are you doing? Obviously, these guys are better. I mean, you can think of some of those consequences too. And um, consequences also for the world, like a really good resource I would recommend to anyone who's trying to come up with a good villain is to crack open Monster of the Week and go look at the like the moves that the the keeper, I think is what they're called in Monster of the Week, if I remember correctly, can make for their monster and for the environment of their monster. Because there are moves in there like separate your players or capture somebody that they love or there's all these different moves that you, that you can make that give some consequences that aren't just I throw a fireball at you or I bite you really hard and you hurt really bad, something like that. There are these other consequences that raise the stakes or make things more difficult or make things more scary because Monster of the Week is a horror game. It's supposed to be a little scary, even if it's campy. Um, we try to emulate that a lot in uh, Moonpunk because in Moonpunk, you're, you're fighting against a villain that everyone should kind of hate if they're buying into the premise of the game. Right. Um, and like, I guess you could just go and launch him out into space if you wanted to, but <laughs> there are going to be consequences because while the authority figure in Moonpunk is doing things, they are also getting their own support from people um, because in our world, um, turns out people kind of like the system um and on the moon that's gonna be the same or they're gonna take away your things or they're gonna throw your friends into jail they're going to do all these things that will infect you even long after they physically are gone or or whatever their whole deal is so um just kind of like all oh, think of the little spider web that they can have going for them that is not going to affect just their own hit points but how it's going to affect your players if you do hey they came in they one-shotted everybody but they still have this they still have this town of enthralled people or they still um you know these these farmers are still starving like what can still linger as a bad thing and it, it strikes me too you made the comment about like the other the other hero group that comes in and that somehow the town <laughs> likes like there's a lot of different ways you can go with that and even if and it, this can be like another hero group it could also be potentially like these are people who have villainous intent underneath all of it and nobody just just nobody knows it yet um it can be revealed later but like if you if you you know as an example if you've got a group where the players are all playing like the characters are all kind of weirdos or they're anti-villain or anti-hero types, you know, so they're kind of jerks or um, anything like there's no pure hearts, you know, there's no paladins or anything in the group. You can have another group come in that's like they're doing all the same great stuff for the town or the kingdom or whatever that that the character group is doing, but they're nice <laughs> or they're charitable or they're funnier than you are. Like just like something about them, like there's just one and you can give the players like this thing like, oh, yeah, they're doing all this great stuff. But everybody likes them more. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, you can also have the, you know, the, the, they, they're duplicitous and they have, you know, something hiding underneath that, um, you know, it's all a facade that, you know, you can take it in that direction, too. But I love the idea of the of the other group that's just like. They're just nice. 
<laughs> or they don't, or they don't have a duplicitous nature. And it's like what Pam was suggesting, giving, giving the players a mirror into themselves. Like what yeah. does it, what does it mean to, to <laughs> murder, <laughs> to, to travel this, around and murder, to be this kind of jerk <laughs> that like, you know, kind of mostly does good, but is still kind of an a-hole <laughs> um, and doesn't really like care, doesn't really care about the people. They're kind of in it for the money or what, you know, whatever your motivations are, like whatever the, the thing that you want the players to reflect on or the characters to reflect on. Then your major <laughs> evil, your major like actual evil villain can kill or capture this other group of heroes that everybody loves. And you jerks are stuck there holding the bill. And maybe some people blame you for their deaths. Like, oh, guys, you guys weren't such jerks. We-, we we want to pay you to go defeat this villain. And while you're doing it, bring their bodies back so we can resurrect them like tie it up with like you okay now you're doing the thing that the town wants or the kingdom wants or whatever but they're also like kind of slapping you in the face in the process i i would love as a player if i had to do that like i was playing a kind of jerk and like my foil jerk like nega me but good um <laughs> went out and did that and then i was hired to go bring i would definitely have a moment as a player where i was like standing over the body being like did they really come back in this pristine condition or were they all mangled? Did I actually recover their, but no one's here right now. No one knows. Hmm, I would have that fun little jerk moment where I'm like, do I want to do the good thing or not? That, that would be really fun for me. Please, please. My future GMs listen to this and make that. For me. <laughs> I also like the point that was brought up by, uh, by Jess that at the end of the day, antagonists do have to be buried or you do have to move on from them and, and or they do have to die. Uh, that is a, at least in the traditional sense of, of, of role-playing, that's usually how it goes. Like any conflict must end and a conflict is not interesting if the stakes are already predetermined. That's part of the reason why a lot of OSR direction is interesting when it comes to their design. There are a number of books that I've read or projects I've worked on where it's literally stated in the book, do not have them roll if there is no point. Like if, if they can just assume that they will succeed or assume that they will fail, just play it out instead of wasting everybody's time. And if you take that vein with antagonists, it should be much the same, right? Like if there's no, uh, if there's no reason why a thing must be done or why an antagonist should act a certain way or even a player should even be encountering them, then don't do it. Because it's not fascinating. It's not interesting. And you're basically going to waste everybody's time. Like any kind of tabletop session is a game and games take a lot more investment in some ways than books uh that's that's why video game and tabletop critique is difficult uh, on a tangent right because we can't help but be emotionally and even economically invested in it we took time out of our busy schedules to play this game mm-hmm. so if you if you frame like if you go all the way back and you frame the the villain and creation this villain creation discussion in that sense then therefore how do you respect your investment as a gm and the investment of your players when you are creating these conflicts and creating these characters how do you respect your mutual decision to all come together and have these things happen how can you give these villains an amazing send-off and how can you make and or how can you make your players awesome for overcoming this difficulty so those are other like meta questions to think like when you when you have that geo moment of okay I think this little antagonist villain arc is over how do we go out with a bang and it always helps like I find it very helpful as a GM to really ask my players okay 
you're in it now. <laughs> you're probably going to have your final showdown. What are the cool things you want to see? Because not contrary to popular belief, there are some players who would rather just have it spelled it out. Like this is also their fantasy too. So they want to see certain things happen. Though, and as a GM, you don't have to do all the work either. If you meet each other halfway when it comes to these conflicts, I, at least I've found that it's very productive to do so. And that, that kind of question can be as vague as like, well, we want, it, we want like one big knockdown drag out that's going to take forever. Or we want a slow yeah. build. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, like, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be like, you know, we, we, we want to face these specific minions in this specific yeah. location. They're not, you're not necessarily yeah. asking for that. Um, but you can, you know, like if uh, we want a cool layer like that the yeah. villain has a really cool layer. We want to be dealing with layer stuff, like weird traps or and like puzzles and things that are traps trying to kill us while we're trying to kill. Like, and then you yeah. can just design to that. Um, yeah. And it's okay, actually, to, to kind of plan out some of those major plot beats with your players. Sometimes that works out really well. Going back to the Avengers, there are people who have read all of the Marvel comics. It's not a surprise what's happening in those movies to them, but they are <laughs> yeah. still going out and they are still cosplaying as the characters they're still watching all these films they're still buying everything and they have this incredible buy-in because they they like the story yeah. um and they even know what's going to happen and i feel like you'd have even more buy-in if like if they got to kind of make those moves and make those decisions themselves because again that's like every marvel forum or comic forum out there is what i would do if <laughs> this is how i would do it <laughs> I think it's, it's a matter of talking to your players. Believe it or not, that's a solution uh, to a lot of <laughs> a lot of your issues. All righty. Well, are we moving on? I think so. Yeah, we could probably talk about this because I, I love all these topics. We could go on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but what are we talking about next, Craig? Uh, next, well, we were talking about making, you know, talking about scary enemies. Well, now from the design standpoint, we're going to talk about scary situations, um, or specifically like kind of how to avoid those pitfalls to watch out for, like things to, um, look out for in terms of like all the, and we leave this open, I think, to the gamut of like, just, you know, from simply designing the game all the way up to like things that you know, people can watch out for if they're also going to be developing, um, project managing, doing a Kickstarter, mm -hmm. publishing, any of the other, you know, aspects of kind of getting the game from design to uh, in the player's hands. I'm just going to hit a couple of little things to start um, and mm -hmm. you can expound on them if you want to. Um, contracts, contracts, contracts. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do handshake agreements. Don't do verbal agreements. Um, even with a friend, especially with a friend, um, that's, you're probably just setting yourself up. It might not bite you in the ass the first time, but it will bite you in the ass at some point. Um, you know, having a, a contract in place that defines the freelancer is doing this. They're expected to, you know, here's a, here's a rundown of what they're producing. Um, do they have to you know, create an outline or a draft beforehand, all that sort of stuff, like when the deadline is what they're getting paid, what kind of feedback you're, um, you know, going to provide all that sort of stuff. Like just make sure that both you and the, the contractor, the freelancer are on the same page and just put it in writing. Yeah. I've, I've seen like every, every major issue I've seen with a development con a company has been a contract issue that could have been solved with a con or at least there would have been 
a recourse that you could have taken without feeling too bad about it. Any any major issue I've ever seen like come out on the forums that I've been in or through IGDN has been something like, uh, we didn't plan this out. We didn't have this in writing. And now we feel like we're screwed. Or there is one, one point of action like, yeah, I'm going to ask them to give me the money that I paid them back because uh, they didn't do the work. But I don't have that in my contract. So that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Let's like legally, I don't know, but at least you'd have it. At least you'd have it, you know? I think speaking on the contracts point as well, there are more and more designers like myself coming into the spaces now. And we are technically not, no, we are are officially not part of the legally binding systems that a lot of tabletop people are used to. That said, that's not an excuse to not have documentation because documentation is still useful and this is going to sound super bitchy it's still useful for receipts it's very unlikely at the end of the day for a lot of us in the indie spaces that we're going to end up taking each other to town and doing the lawyer business and quite frankly not a lot of us want to do that anyway because it's a goddamn hassle right and it's also just terrible I, I used to do legal compliance it was never fun having to go into the ring with any kind of legal situation. But the documentation can also serve the, the purpose of being of having things clear cut. Like you don't just have to handshake it. You can, as, as Craig pointed out, you can have the following things delivered at that time by this person for that reason. Then you can always have the fail-safe. Like in the event that you suddenly cannot do this, because this has happened very often in this global pandemic, you you all signed off in good faith, you all had big plans, but things just went down in the shitter. And that's not your fault as the contractor. That's not their fault as the person who hired you, uh, who was hired. It just happened. So if you have like an exit clause, right, of, okay, if this happens, please inform me at so-and-so time. And then we can figure things out from there, right? Uh, so, oh, the other thing that for for pitfalls and designs related to the contracts, I find it very useful to have guides for people that you're hiring. Uh, this is speaking both as somebody who has done project lead stuff now and who is on the receiving end of like the, the freelancer who's like, okay, I'm going to design a thing. What am I designing? <laughs> no idea, right? Like I've had the full gamut of designers who are like, hey, Pam, I want you to write a thing. And I'm like, okay, what thing do you want me to write? And I'm like, I don't know, just write the thing. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't yeah. know how to proceed from there, right? Like what, no, we can't just say write me an adventure and it has to be 500 to 2,500 words. You have to tell me what you want, right? Because the something that ends up throwing a lot of wrenches in people's plans, both on the project lead side and the, the freelancer side, is a lack of clarity. So again, when you say an adventure, what are the elements that you want included? So put it down in a document. So that both of you can view it and both of you can agree what you want to happen. When you have like a scenario thing, say as well, are there non-negotiables? Are there themes you don't want to touch? How mechanically involved do you want your people to be? Like um, documentation is just key. Uh, And that way you also um, remove the potential aggravation of having to be that nasty project lead who's like, no, no, I'm not happy with your work that sounds like five, six thousand revisions that's terrible because mm-hmm. you're not just wasting your freelancers time you're wasting your time 
from the simple lack of clarity. And it and the even outside of that, and I, I guess I'm just more speaking from my perspective, the you don't want to sour relations with each other either, especially if you came from areas again of good faith. Because contrary to popular belief, most people will always come from an area of good intent and good That's faith. That's true. Mm-hmm. Right. Some people are just sometimes like even the smartest of us and even the most put together of us will have derp moments where we're like, I should have done that. Right. Um, and th- there should not be any malice ascribed to that, especially in the tensions of, of bringing the project forward. Right. So documentation is key. Clarity is key. At the end of the day, talk it out. It's not that hard to talk it out, set up a meeting, go, hey, I really don't like how this is going or I'm not sure where, what's happening here. Let's talk. You can hash it out and you don't even have to have the scary thing of like, it's written here, blah, blah, blah. You can just literally just see each other and go, yo, what's happening? It, it solves <laughs> a whole lot of problems, right? Um, so those, those are some things off the top of my head. And you can speak to, you know, we, we can speak to uh, like the idea of not necessarily knowing everything that you want to start with. So yeah. you, like amend, yeah. contracts can be amended. You can actually yep. write, I've done it multiple times. You can write in the contract, like, you know, specifics of XYZ to be determined by, you know, Nerdburger Games and, you know, yeah. freelancer at a later date and to, you know, to be agreed upon. Um, you can add things like that. You can amend things. You can send a send an edit of the contract, highlight it, send it an email, say, hey, is this amendment acceptable to you? They send an email back that says, yes, this is an acceptable amendment. And now you've got documentation that you've agreed to make this change. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's on the same page and you can uh, kind of extend that the whole communication idea of contracts into just like your day-to-day week-to-week month-to-month um, communication too is uh, trying to avoid lapses in communication if you like I, yeah. I try to set uh, like a standard of what like what my freelancer can expect will be how, how often am I going to be communicating with them and hopefully then they yeah. will reciprocate and communicate with me about that often or I simply request things like if I have an artist who's going to do 20 pieces and they're not going to show me the sketches until they've done all 20 and they're a part-timer so it's going to take a little while I say just let me know when you're halfway just yeah. so I know just so I know it's on track and and they let me know hey I got 10 of the sketches done I should have the other 10 done by this day um, so that way you can just kind of be up to speed and, and, and they know that, you know, that they're, they've kept you up to speed. And so that keeps them comfortable um, because nothing hurts more as a freelancer is, uh, is like getting close to a deadline and being unsure of whether you're going to be able to hit it. And you're afraid to tell the person, like, I might need another week um, because you don't really know them that well. And so like, you know, there's plenty of people get really anxious about situations like that. Like I agreed to this thing, but I don't know people, you know, if the past two years have taught us anything, it's that shit is going to happen. And, <laughs> um, and just work emergencies, personal emergencies, family stuff, um, getting sick, uh, you know, just, just let people know. And if you have established a, um, a, a expectation of communication uh, at a certain rate, um, you can, uh, you know, at, like me as the, as the contract writer, as the, the project, you know, the hirer, 
I can find myself like, well, I haven't heard from so-and-so for a while. I'm going to ping him and say, hey, where does where do we stand on this? How are you doing? Because they might have hit some sort of personal emergency and they're not trying to forget you. They're not purposely forgetting about you. They're just drowning in something else right now. Overwhelmed. And they suddenly realize, oh crap, I was going to, you know, yeah. email you and let you know that I'm going to, you know, like things, have, I, I got an issue to deal with here. I'm still on track or I've got an issue to deal with and I'm going to need another two weeks or they just forget because yeah. Uh, yeah, just like open communication, keeping an expectation in place um, and just, you know, periodic check-in and make sure everything's moving along. The, the check-ins are good. Like having the check-in that way you can, like, especially if it's a long-term project, yeah. that way, you know, when these things are happening, if it's a short-term project, like this is a week turnaround, you're probably not going to have any kind of like devastating thing happen within that week. Probably not. Uh, although that can still happen, but a lot of our projects are, this is a six month project, a three month project, mm-hmm. a year long project. Year long, yeah. yeah. Think about all the stuff that happened in a year. There's been a lot. 2021. Do you remember everything that happened? No, I don't. I blacked out halfway through. <laughs> Who knows? I think it's also useful because, uh, and I, I have to go into this because it's, it's not the reality in our spaces, right? Uh, be aware as well of how your intersections might be affecting the intersections of your freelancer. Like a lot of, there's a great amount of pressure, for example, for a lot of people of color to deliver on time, on the dot, minimal revisions, because there will be people who may or may not realize that they have particular biases when when it comes to dealing with somebody who is not like them. Um, I got Speaking from my end, for example, I had to be told multiple times by trusted contracts, ask more, (laughs) tell us when you're struggling. It's okay, because my programming tells me to not speak up until it's done. So there's that, understanding that there are intricacies affected by race, by gender, uh, all of that stuff when it comes to freelance work. And that also some of your freelancers will be under a lot more pressure to give you the stiff upper lip and tell you everything's fine when actually the world's on fire, right? Uh, there's 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 that too um, to consider. And and if just on the flip side of that, if you're like me, the straight white dude, is be aware that people that you're hiring may be feeling that kind of those those pressures and anxieties and worries, and mm-hmm. like don't be that person. <laughs> you know, if, if, you know, don't, don't bring down a hammer about like how complete something is or whether something's going to need, you know, like need a revision or whatever, or hitting a deadline. Um, like tr- do your God's honest truth best at, um, treating everybody the same. And it's hard. There's everybody has prejudices that you, you may do something that you don't think, but just keep it in mind, like think about it. And as, as you do it more and more, you'll find yourself just kind of remind, reminding yourself like, okay, don't be like, there's, there's just a freelancer who's doing a thing and there's a deadline. And if they need a couple more weeks, they need a couple more weeks. And I'm not going to bring, you know, 
um, you know, slap, slap anybody down over it. And I you know, certainly don't want it to be perceived as, I don't want it to be from a prejudice or even be perceived as coming from a prejudice because that just makes you somebody that they don't want to work with and everybody talks. Yeah. You know, that's another pitfall right <laughs> that, there. That crap's going to get back to you. It's going to, it's going to make it harder for you to find people because like somebody that has a bad experience in this type, type of situation is going to tell their friends. Mm-hmm. They will tell or, their friends. Yeah. Don't work for this person. They, they, yeah. they treat people of color badly or they treat women badly or you know, whatever the case a- is. It's a matter of survival for people who are who do have uh, who are not s- on the privileged right. Uh, it's a spectrum. small, small industry. It is. We all know each other. We, <laughs> we we talk about it in both directions. It's like it's oh, it's one industry and it's all very small and everybody knows each other. Or well, it's also technically like twenty different industries. But we, <laughs> but we but we really do. We really do talk to each other because we get to know each other at conventions and online spaces and all this sort of stuff. And all it takes is for it to bleed from one mini community to one other mini community community and suddenly it gets spread to that whole group you never want to be the person who has the twitter thread written about you um i mean (laughs) those have been pretty egregious in the past like some of those behaviors have been pretty egregious in the past but uh, again that's kind of another pitfall to fall into is to be careful who you're also associating with um like there are you know, they, there are the missing stairs in the community and things like that. But even just beyond that, like, what are you saying online in your online design spaces? Because you're probably, if you're anything like me, you're being followed by a lot of other designers and these are, or artists or writers, <clears throat> and they are going to be looking at what you're saying and what you're doing. And they're going to be making, whether conscious or not, they're going to be making value judgments on you. So you, I think being really careful about kind of the space that you're cultivating for yourself and, and like the kind of person you're putting forward, not to be inauthentic, but just to think of like, like, I don't want to make that maybe you like don't make a crass joke at a convention where other people that you might not know the tastes of are going to be looking at you and 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 being again going and reporting back they're going to go onto twitter and be like hey did you hear what just guyer said at gen gun can you believe yeah, this I, I think actually like going to the social media aspect of it because it's very it's unavoidable and it's extremely important right? yeah uh the point about authenticity and also the fact that um I think that in general, the industry spaces that we're in have a real problem when it comes to assuming that we should all be friends. So I'm going to yes. be that bitch and say, you want to be professional, if you're here for any, in any sort to make games on your own or to hire other people, you have to understand that there's a delineation between, for example, with me, professional Pam and Pam as she is as a person, right? It, it's, it's, the, the more we understand that the stakes for each of us are different. Some of us are doing it for fun and shits and giggles. Others are doing it literally so that they could put food and, and, and bread on uh, food and whatever on the table. Right? When an understanding or at least a broadening of perspective of that all of our motivations and our stakes are different and constantly being cognizant of that is, is going to serve you very well. Then uh, another social media pitfall is uh, uh, don't be that guy, that queer, or that girl who will look at Twitter and go like, but they keep talking about their video game. Why can't they work on my commission? Right? <laughs> I've, I've seen 
those project people. I don't want to work with those project people, right? Like what you, everybody performs on some level or another to social media, whether it's because they're literally performing a particular persona or they've decided to omit information or omit what is happening or mask. Uh, it's a thing. So you can't assume that the happy-go-lucky freelancer that you dealt with on their Twitter platform actually is fully happy, safe feeling, capable of delivering on-time person, right? And I'm not saying don't hire them because they can't. What I'm saying is be nice about it. They, they might actually be struggling. Uh, like just getting personal for a second, it took me literally three months to decide to go on Twitter again and say, hey, this is my financial situation. If you could help, please do. If you can't, thank you for your time. It took me three months to decide that because it was hard for me to come out knowing that my platform is a platform with a lot of eyes on it. Mm -hmm. Some of them professional, people who have hired me before and people who were looking to hire me. Um, don't, don't be that person who is cruel to, to those of us who cannot actually uh, deliver on time at certain parts of the year. There are also a lot of designers with pre-existing conditions and disabilities that make it difficult to, to do so now. Uh, at the end of the day, like a lot more clarity and a lot more understanding will go a long way. And being ready to adjust, like on a practical standpoint, don't make your margins of your project so tight and so ambitious. Be ready to scale down. Be ready to revise. Be ready to chop out an entire section, field it for another project. Because shit gonna happen <laughs> to both of you or to, to one of you. Or you might even realize midway through the project, what was I doing? That's not right. I could change it entirely. Be ready to let go. Yeah. And be ready also to, don't be afraid as well to just tell some freelancers, because this is something I don't like as a freelancer either. Um, hey, this isn't working out. Can we figure out another space in which we can collaborate? Uh, that, that would help a lot more as well. Nobody's going to, and frankly, if, if you've been that clear and that good intended and somebody still doesn't like you for it, that's not a them, that's not a you problem anymore. That's a them problem. So that's my two steps on it. I think too, um, like it's not just necessarily the people that you're currently working with, but the people that you might work with getting a really big ego because you had a, you had like one good game or you're like, you're sitting at your own booth at a convention. You never know who's going to be the next up and comer or you never know again I, I feel like this is so slimy of me of saying but like you gotta think about because we are in this kind of this professional space or or some for, for some people a hobby space but this this professional space here you don't want to be rude to somebody because you think like really check your ego when you're thinking <laughs> about these things oh yeah just that can expand to just in general check your ego. Yeah. Like as an example, <laughs> as an example, um, I follow an artist, that artist follows me. That artist is doing work for me. I saw them vent about a client. It's not about me. And just keep that in mind. Like if somebody vents about something, you like uh, they're clearly venting about a client or somebody that they're collaborating with. It's almost certainly not about you because the people that you're working with are probably working for multiple clients and they're probably not throwing that comment out into a space where they know you might see it. So just, yeah. and that's, that's an ego thing in general, just keep the ego. And if they are, they might turn out to be somebody you don't want to work with. Um, but you know, just the, the yeah. ego thing in general is just like, check your ego, ego at the door in general. Like just, it's, it's almost never all about you. 
in, in any regard, in any part of life. I think the fact that like we all feel kind of connected in this space and, and like Pam mentioned, like there's like this friendly feeling with a lot of us uh, in the in the TTRPG space that some people get into this comfort zone, like they're just chatting with their their friends or they're like, it's like a social group. Whereas like, if you do make a fumble in this industry, it's not only going to have those social repercussions, but unlike with your friend group that you go hang out with on, on the weekends, they're going to also be professional consequences because of the nature of this uh, industry. Be, be careful of parasitic, I mean, parasocial relationships. But you know, actually, be kind of conscious of parasitic relationships yeah, as well. If, if somebody's <laughs> kind of you know, you can, you know, eating, eating up a lot of your time, thinks that they can, that they have like access to you, and um, you know, we've talked about this before, establishing brown boundaries mm-hmm. with fans, and that can be that can extend to freelancers as well. Yeah. Can I shift? Can I shift a little bit? Sure, sure. To design oriented kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, this is the first thing I thought of when I looked at this topic, which is the fantasy heartbreaker. Um, does everybody know what the fantasy heartbreaker is? I'm not sure how, how, how many people know that term anymore. Um, it's basically the idea that it, it came, it came kind of out of D and D and other fantasy games where you like, I've got this game. I love D and D, but there's been multiple editions. And I like this part of this edition and this part of that edition and that part of that edition. And I've got 17 house rules and I'm going to pull this from Warhammer and I'm going to pull this from somewhere else. And I'm going <laughs> to slam it all together into a game that is my perfect fantasy game. And it's probably going to be a heartbreaker because it's probably, it's got so many bits and pieces of the pie that come <laughs> from different places that don't play well with each other, that it's not necessarily going to do uh, the job that you think it is, even if it's, you know, personally, all your favorite pieces of, of games, of game design um, and your own house rules. Um, now, that said, there are some people who have argued and some of those people are um, respected game designers that Shadow of the Demon Lord is a fantasy heartbreaker that succeeded um, because it is definitely Rob Schwab's favorite little bits and pieces of fantasy games, including all of his thematic things that he likes dark stuff and like spells that are just, oh my God, and monsters <laughs> that are revolting and like just really, and you know, and he built a game that you could potentially qualify as a fan- fantasy heartbreaker that works. Um, but you are probably not Rob Schwab. You don't have uh, his uh, many years, nine decades of experience um, and um, you know, broad um, understanding of a lot of different games that he's worked on. Uh, so the, the other, the kicker to fantasy heartbreakers to be, just be wary of them um, because this is like, like, Pam was saying too, is like, yeah, sometimes you got to let some stuff go. Like maybe, maybe, maybe those, some, maybe some of those pieces don't need to be there. Maybe scale it back a little bit. Um, but fantasy heartbreakers often um, roll into the realm of something that we talk about in game design all the time, which is perfect is the enemy of done. If you are looking to create the perfect game, I can virtually guarantee you, you're not going to do it. There are six of them. They've already been designed. Um, and I'm not going to tell you which ones they are because everybody has different opinions. But there are a handful out there that you would say, like, this is just spectacular. This is really, we're gonna, really. We're going to throw hands if we end up talking about, like, yeah. perfect games. No, <laughs> everybody's going to throw hands. <laughs> it's Honey this Heist. Will, this will end with tables being flipped. Honey Heist, Dread. Um, All out of bubble gum. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's a few. Um, but the, the, the point being that, yeah, just, you know, be ready to scale stuff back. You know, be, be ready to put the 
the end you know, to say the end to something like if you if you've designed and redesigned and play tested and revised and da, 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 and got something so that it works pretty darn well it doesn't need to be perfect trying to make it perfect is just going to prevent you from finishing it um only you only you will know when when the end is appropriate for you, like every, but some people will be like, I'm going to work on a game. And if it takes me three years to make it, that's how long it takes me. And some people are going to say, this thing is going to be done in nine months, come hell or high water. Um, I, you know, you'll, you'll know what that is, but you just keep that in mind that, um, and I haven't, I have a related play tester kind of thing to that plays into that, but I'm going to throw this back over to the two of you. No, I was just going to um, say, don't get big for your britches either. Cause yeah. if you're, if you're a game designer like me, I am never going to, unless something outrageous happens, I'm never going to compete with wizards of the coast. It's not going to happen. It's I'm not going to compete with a lot of bigger games. <laughs> I don't want to make my goal to compete um don't don't compare your game to another game and be like oh mine's so less successful or oh man i'm never gonna do this because then you're gonna fall into the trap of woe is me i might as well just give up your game is your game every game is different every game has its own strengths and its own weaknesses you're never going to as craig said make a perfect game you're never even going to make your perfect game you're going to find something else that you want to do. You're going to find a typo on page five. It's going to happen. Um, as well, that like it's important to every piece that you create, even if it doesn't end in the final project, has intrinsic value. You will learn along the way in the process of design. You'll just get better at it as long as you keep at it. Like it sounds very shonen manga, but it's also very true. Like, you learn so many fiddly bits just by trying. And if you have to cut it out, you can mourn for maybe a day and then put it in a, in a trash document and go flip through your trash document and go, hey, I like that mechanic. Maybe I can put it in another project, right? So being open-minded to that, uh, that idea of finished is better than perfect, right, is, is good. Uh, I also really like the point about competing. Uh, it's not about competing. Uh, the point is to create more options, even if they are simply options that you, only you want to play. Uh, because in searching for what you want to play, you may also find your audience. It's hard because I get a lot of like young designers down here asking me, like, well, what does the market want? I'm like, no, 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 no. If you go for what the market wants, you'll never be happy. Uh, go for what you want to play, what you want to see on the shelf what you think has some kind of value that you can put on it, charge money for it, or put wherever, charge money for it, and you can go, I made that thing, that's cool, right? If you keep, if you have the luxury, rather, to keep doing that, then inevitably you will create a repertoire of games and things and other fun stuff that someone else on the internet is going to go, hey, I like this, this was super cool. And they will be able to share with you what they found cool and the answers will always surprise you. Uh, one of the games that I made with my partner is called Public Utility Max. And that literally came out of the idea that we have this thing in the Philippines called a jeepney, which is kind of like our, it's a bus, but not, it's also not a taxi because <laughs> uh, it's literally a jeep, kind of like a, not, not, yeah, it's a jeep that they refurbished with metal stuff. So you can put like maybe 20 people in there and you can drive through the side streets of Manila with. So that's a jeepney. You can, you can Google it if you like. They tend to be festooned with all sorts of pretty colors. And sometimes they're just metal chunks of like possible death on the road. <laughs> and 
we were thinking, what if we took a jeepney and they can transform like transformers? So it was really our idea. We just wanted jeepneys that transform like transformers. So we created a whole bunch of random tables that satirized our government. We called it a day. We literally shat that game out in year. Didn't think about it. And I had people tagging me and my partner going like, this shit was amazing. You have the following innovation and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, I totally meant to do that. (laughs) You always have something. As long as you throw it out there, you're giving people the chance to respond to you, to tell you this was cool, to point out things that you as designer did not notice because you can never fully be the reader and you can never fully be the player. People will always teach you. Your audience is not dumb. They are engaged. They are active. They will show you. They will give you feedback. It might not always be the feedback that you desire initially, but it is feedback. It's a learning and teachable experience. It's interesting in this industry where we we play games where there's no right answer and there's the point is not to win. And then we are like, oh, there has to be a right answer and I must win. I must win with my game. It's weird. That is that's an excellent uh, correlation on that. That is top notch. Um, yeah, the, the 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 audience is there. You'll find the audience um, in one way or the other at some point. I, I joke constantly that my first game is about people beating up each other up in an office um, and it found an audience. It's yeah. it's not the second coming of anything. It's just a weird little game that some people really, really love. Um, and then uh, as far as being surprised by people too, the, that quick sidetrack into playtest uh, play comment is is twofold rule that I try to follow is one, listen to your play testers and two, know when and why to stop listening to your play testers. Mm-hmm. Um, play testers are going to probably point out things that you didn't see, pay attention to that. Um, if the whole, you know, if, if all your play testers, all your groups are pointing out like, Hey, this rule subset isn't doing the job. That's probably a problem that needs mm-hmm. to be addressed. Mm-hmm. If you have six or eight groups and one group has a, a well-reasoned argument for why this particular rule subset isn't doing uh, the job, is it not doing the job or is it not doing the job they want it to do? Yes. Where's the yes. disconnect? Yes. Um, and then if you leave that rule as it was, the seven groups that liked it are satisfied and the the group number eight, when they get the final game, they're either going to suck it up and just play it that way because that's what you designed, or they're going to house rule it anyway um, into the thing that they wanted it to be because they have a different expectation for that rule subset. Um, So it's, it's important to kind of note those things. Like there was a, there was a play test group. I had to essentially throw all of their play test feedback out um, mm-hmm. because I was informed by, uh, this was when I was playtesting mergers and acquisitions, the first game. And I was doing the supplement that, um, handles like near future cyber tech stuff in the office. You know, you got this office setting and there's, so I had all this stuff, the group that one group that played it almost exclusively plays shadow run. Mm-hmm. And my game is not shadow run. No. And they were intrigued in playing this because they like shadow run and they wanted to see my take on that kind of sort of thing. And so they played it and they had all sorts of feedback and it's like everything that they gave me feedback was like, turn this into Shadowrun. 
they, that's how it all translated was like do this like Shadowrun does it um so i basically threw all their feedback out <laughs> um and so you know you do need to look at playtest feedback uh with a critical eye and, and understand where things are coming from and be willing to uh, something i'm actually going to be doing this afternoon with a playtest uh, group is if uh if feedback is given that um they, the, the, the groups, the, the, the play testers make some comments about like, we, we, don't, we want more of this, we want more of that, um, or we, we, we think that this is missing. Um, it's okay to have a follow-up. Um, don't just like try, don't try to decipher everything about the play test responses. If you need a, a little email back and forth, or you need to sit down and have a, a Zoom chat for 10 minutes to clarify what they mm -hmm. were trying, what they were getting at, especially if you think like, okay, there's a, there's a serious concern here. This is, this is something I should really address. Like, let me, let me pick that person's brain um, for a little bit. Um, so yeah, keep that in mind. Like the, the play test as a, as a pitfall, play testing doesn't end necessarily the, the, the usefulness of it doesn't end with the survey being turned in. Like you can, you can expand, you can expound. I think it's also important, especially for budding designers to choose your play testers well too. Because like there are some people who can really do the whole crowdsourcing thing, like bigger games. It's a great field to just like toss out, like, okay, this is game for playtesting, play it, get back to me, figure it out later, right? But for budding designers, I strongly encourage you to choose your playtesters well. Remember that playtesting is also a skill. People literally get hired in the video game industry to break a game. Therefore, tabletop playtesting must similarly be a skill. That they that is developed and that some people have higher potential for at the start and other people kind of have to learn by doing. So if you if you choose your playtester as well, then you will also get the feedback that you're hoping for that is clear, communicable, and stuff again that they had an eye that again that you could not actually see before and pointed out to you. Right. The my personal bias when it comes to playtesting is. Try not to turn your friend group into your perpetual guinea pig for all your projects. Yep. Um, I don't know how applicable that is for everybody, but speaking both as somebody who tried to do that way back when I was a much younger designer and also somebody who has edited projects where clearly the designer only uses one specific group for playtesting literally everything, uh, your game is not going to end up the, the nice Thing that you were hoping for because that a friend group because you were friends will align with you really well in certain ways but also have super duper blind spots so if you can get like an external opinion that is also trustworthy enough balance that out with your friend group could be good uh yeah, I, your friends and your mom will always tell you that you're great <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they will. Uh, so there's that. Try to avoid the friend group playtest. Where the we this started as a homebrew that my friends were playing, and then let's just launch into make it a game. Like, every, okay, it's not. I'm not saying that that's not a valid approach to design. I started that way, and it was highly valuable. But if if you have the means to reach beyond your space, do so. And more of us as well are involved in Discord spaces or Slack spaces or what have you spaces. And it, there are a lot of people out there like, hey, okay, yeah, let's sit down. Let's talk about it. Like, give me your game document. Let's sit down. Let's play, let's play test it. Or let me, let me do a read through for you. Um, one, when we were talking about pitfalls of design before we went to play testing, I got a valuable piece of advice in Big Bad Con. I think it was from Karen 12s, 
where what she does, or one way that she, she as an editor, uh, how she clarifies the way a game works is she simply reads it out without actually understanding what the game is. She's given the document and she goes like, she reads it out. And then the she will run the game for you according to her interpretation. So if you watch her do it, right, then you can see, wait, that's not how it works. And then that's when the two of you can ask, okay, how did you want it to work? Because if we wanted it to work, then maybe you need to change A, B, C. So that's that's one good way of editing slash playtesting a mechanical document. Because game design is also technical writing. And that's not a skill. I don't think a lot of people put that label on it. But I think a couple of the RPGC folks are saying, yeah, it's, it's technical writing. That's, that's what it is. And technical writing is very different from narrative writing, from, from all sorts of other kinds of writing. I always refer to it as an RPG book is an instruction manual, yeah. a, a bit of it, it's prose, like yeah. narrative prose. Um, and it's also a reference manual. And those are three different ways of writing things. They're hard to combine. And I'm, I, mm-hmm. am I perfect with mine? <laughs> Not at all. Um, but I, I, you know, study different game books, see how they do it, see the ones that seem to make sense for you. Um, they're probably being done that way because they make sense for a lot of people. Um, everybody's different. Um, you know, some people will find the organization of certain books better than other books. You can't please everybody. You're not going to, again, it's not going to be perfect how you organize your book, but like, as long as you have a logic to the organization of the book, you'll have a, you know, some people that will definitely grasp it very, very quickly and easily. Some people that like, they'll get it with a little work. And then some people will be like, this is this is hard. <laughs> I don't, I don't. Um, and that's get just it. the case. Like some people, it's just hard. Yeah. Um, like I, I, I have a really hard time with any super crunchy book. If there's a lot of like crunchy rule, robust and like stuff spread out. And um, I find it very hard to wrap my head around how the game functions. I'm terrible at it. This, this, this brain here is not very good at crunchy tabletop. It is full of FF14 raid solutions and how to run <laughs> trials and extremes and how to do particular button combinations in games like Genshin. But I'm not very good at the crunchy tabletop. <laughs> it's two different skill sets, which it is not combined in this brain in particular. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Are we, are we good? Are we, we set on pitfalls? I think so. Mostly Uh, know your layout requirements for printing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Get get your artwork and and graphic work done in the right way. Um, Have as much done as possible before you kickstart just to get it, you know, to be able to fulfill faster. Um, And also uh, be careful about uh, like, having a Kickstarter that suddenly blows up and you decide I'm going to put a whole bunch of extra stuff into, into um, uh, stretch goals that I'm going to add now that aren't prepped. Now I'm going to have to design. I'm going to have to play test. I'm going to do a lot of stuff. You're also going to add um, page count and size and weight to the book. And you might hit a threshold for shipping without knowing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so suddenly your the, your budget numbers aren't working out because the book went from like, went to 1.1 pounds and it suddenly can't be shipped in a certain way or in a certain size box. Um, so and don't spend your Kickstarter money on things that you didn't budget out for the game, because then you're going to have to, I've seen this happen and it's always terrible. And it makes everyone think that you are a, a bad manager. You don't want that seen that happen don't spend your kickstarter money on on not your game 
get the game done. And then you buy the solid gold train that you're going to ride around the country. (laughs) Craig, thank you for uh, ruining my summer vacation plans. (laughs) All right. Pam, thank you so much for joining us again. It's it's always a blast. Uh, I always enjoy listening to your insights. Thank you as well. I'm glad to to always come around. Uh, last month was just a bit like not so, but I figured that uh, my weekend was free. So, all right. Well, awesome. Thank you again. Uh, and what do you? Where can we find you? And what do you have to promote? Well, I am. Leading the official Dagger Isle supplement for Blades in the Dark. Playtests are underway for the playbook, so there's that. I'm promoting it more to, yeah, more to remind people like, hey, it's a thing. It's not falling out of the ether. It's alive, <laughs> right? It's happening, right? Because we we had we faced a lot of delays, and many of the delays came from all over the place. Because you know everybody's busy, and uh, as I like to say, shit gonna happen, right? But that's that's one thing I'd like to promote. Hopefully, it'll be finished this year. And I'm telling myself, finish it this year because some of it is on me. <laughs> uh, my partner and I are finally fulfilling our game from the Our Shores Kickstarter. It is called Navithem's End. We will be done like the end of this month to, to maybe February. And there is talk of us at doing a limited print run because I know that people like dead tree copies of books. So that might be for the US and UK fulfillment. Uh, and it is a powered by the apocalypse game. You play agents in what they call a tower in the world of Navithem because the world of Navithem is a world defined by chaos and chaos creates apocalypses constantly. You are the agents on the forefront of that, of that fight standing on the shoulders of seven heroes whose legacies you no longer remember because it happened literally 800 years ago. So that's our other game. Uh, otherwise, you can see me on Asians Represent. I will be streaming more. The lovely folks there. I may also develop my channel. God willing, I have the time to be to you to see to show off my fancy chair to everybody and the butt of my cat who likes to come (laughs) running in. We Uh, were able to enjoy that, and you want to do that too. (laughs) We got cat butt today while we were talking multiple (laughs) times. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, yeah, but yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, the Dovetailer, and I do have a Kofi. So that's me. Uh, you can find me at at Jaska on Twitter or at my website, wannabegames.com, where you can also find links to where I sell my games. I am just working on Means of Magic right now. Uh, that's all I'm doing. I'm just finishing that up so we can fulfill that. And uh, I'm Craig Campbell. I'm at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter, uh, nerdburgergames.com, drivethroughrpg.com. I've got everything for sale there as well. Um, uh, what am I doing? Uh, very shortly, February 1st, I launch uh, Felt Friendship and Feelings, which is my Muppet game, but not Muppets, like puppet people game, um, where you <laughs> play a puppet, you play puppet folk and you go on an adventure. Um, and uh, the game mechanics involve sharing your dice. So uh, that's coming up. It's a little, little bitty game. Um, and then I got, you know, various irons in the fire. Um uh, so more on some of that stuff down the road. And Jess and I need to talk about the possibility of a collaboration. Yeah. Um, yeah. Along with along with another guest of this show, we're going to talk and see if that's going to actually happen. 
So more on that or not. Uh, who fingers, knows, but probably fingers more crossed. On that. <laughs> fingers crossed. We got to see if we can do it. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about all that. And uh, I am also thankful for our theme song, our opening and closing music by Steph's Avel by Steph Sachs, which was licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs. And thank all of you for coming in and listening to me stumble over my introduction. Thank you, Craig, for fixing my introduction. And thank you, Pam, again for coming. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye. 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 Bye.